Welcome to That's a Wrap, episode number 12. Today we have an interview with Ian Ullman, and um, before we get to that, we're going to do pickups. So I am Eric Marshall. I am Chris Gullen. And I am Nick Schlegel. And we are three guys with PhDs who like talking about film, media, and culture. So last week we did the Woody Allen uh, episode, which uh, was pretty well received. We had a little bit of debate on the website, which was nice. We like debate. That's fun. Um, initiated in part by our, uh, our our guests from episode 10, <laughs> Bob Groin. So that was kind of fun, right, guys? Oh, it was great, yeah. <laughs> that was good, yeah. yeah it's always good to have discourse. It was, yeah. it was. Because Bob was of the opinion, uh, of the opposite opinion. You know, I had, I had read on Facebook and a lot of other places about uh, that viewpoint. And then so Chris and I discussed how we didn't necessarily totally find it problematic and and so we got into a nice discussion on it on the website, which is great, you know, and civilized, <laughs> intelligent, right, right. back and forth, you know, which mm-hmm. was, and I think we both respected, we all, we certainly respected each other's viewpoints and saw the other point of view, too. So it turned out good, I think. I thought so, too. Yeah, it was great. Oh, and Eric, I should tell you, I've gotten uh, a copy of Love and Death since since our last podcast, so I'm eagerly anticipating watching that. <laughs> great, great. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's a good one. You'll enjoy it. You'll definitely oh, enjoy it. Can't so, wait. I guarantee you that. Uh, uh, what's new with you guys? Anything new, uh, Chris? Uh, not a lot new. Just um, settling back into the semester um, and having a having a good time. Good teaching and preparing a couple articles um, for conferences next month. So um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a been a great fall so far. Really uh, enjoying back being back in Detroit. Excellent, excellent. Good, good. Uh, Nick, anything? Well, just, um, you know, pretty much echoing where Chris is at on that. Of course, I've got uh, four full days at, at Eastern Michigan University, which is a, 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 you know, a fairly decent commute for me, so I'm getting used to the two hours of driving every day, right. which is something that Eric is very accustomed to. Um, and But other than that, it's an incredibly smooth launching semester uh, uh, Everything's going great there. I'm very happy. Very busy, absolutely. Yes, this has been an incredibly busy couple of weeks. I haven't been this busy in a long time. Here, here, same. I I echo that as well. It's I just been slammed. It's slammed. Um, yeah. I'm teaching at Wayne and and between teaching at Wayne and and research and all the other things that come with it. Very very busy. Eric, yeah, what's going on with you? Yeah, pretty much same. Um, I don't. <laughs> I strangely feel less busy than I did uh, in August. It's really weird, but uh, you know, I've got two class. I've got several classes, but they're at two different uh, two different places. Uh, they have that that commute you're talking about, Nick. I know exactly what you're talking about because I do the, almost the same thing in reverse because I'm exactly. coming from Ypsilanti to near where you live. That's where I listen to all my podcasts. I listen to so many podcasts uh, in the in that commute um, for uh, for the tutoring that I do. Uh, but yeah, it's you know it's it's been good so far. I, I, I had two weird things happen to me this week um, in the classroom. Um, one was um, I was doing it's an intro to screen studies class, and I have students go around and introduce themselves. And one of them says, uh, 
you know, I'm so-and-so, and I'm blah, 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 whatever. He's like, and by the way, I listened to your podcast. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> nice. So here's a shout-out to, to that student. I won't mention it by name, but that's, <laughs> here's a shout-out. So um, I was like, I was like, do you like it? I'm like, don't answer that. Don't answer that. <laughs> right, right, right. Tell me after this message. Okay. Tell me later, you know. <laughs> so, that's fantastic. Oh, yeah. so, so we're, uh, you know, we're, the word's getting out on, on uh, that's a wrap. Maybe. Penetration. Or maybe, that's or maybe, good. Or maybe he just Googled his professor and found the podcast. I'm not sure. This is true. This yeah, is true. you know. I hadn't thought of it that possible. Way. <laughs> Either way, we'll take, we'll take it. We'll take it. Another weird thing happened to me yesterday. Um, yeah, we're recording on September 12th, so yesterday was September 11th, and um, I was teach I teach a class from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. and uh, we do lecture and discussion for the first uh, two hours or so. We take a 15 minute break and then we do the screening, uh, which was Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind this week. And uh, I haven't come back from break, and I was very quickly kind of. Uh, doing the whole, make sure you turn in your homework next week, you know, and do the quizzes online, and you know, just a really quick wrap up, and and all that. Uh, so I had to hit play on the thing to get them out of there on time. And this girl in the front says, "Excuse me, uh, this is off topic, but do you think we could have a moment of silence for the uh, 9/11 victims to commemorate the, you know, the attacks?" And I was like, and I was totally taken off guard because it's been 12 years since those attacks, sure. and I know I've taught on September 11 before. I'm sure I have. But no one's ever asked that. It was like 11 in the morning, so it was around the time of the attacks, I guess. Right. And I was, I was really confused and kind of taken aback at first. I was like, uh, uh, uh yeah, yeah, sure. And uh, look at look at dummy, you know, it's totally whatever. So uh, I was like, yeah, sure. Uh, so a uh, moment of silence, and everyone was silent for like 20 seconds. And then we get, and then I was like, okay, well, let's watch Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It was pretty strange. That is, that is interesting. Yeah, that, I've never had that happen to me before, and I, I, I suspect I would have acted the exact same way. I would have sort of been at first a little just surprised at the request, and then certainly would have been like, yeah, absolutely, I'm, I'm fine with that, and I'm sure everybody's fine with that. So. Right, right. And I wish I, yeah, and I, yeah, maybe I could have said something or prepared the other students for right. it. It's just like, uh, okay, yeah, everybody shut up. I, I didn't say that, but right. it was a really nice gesture on, the, really on, the part of that student, on the part of that student and everything. But it was just one of those, like, you know how you're on, you're on, you have, you have certain things you want to get through, and like you're on, you're on a certain track, and, and all of a sudden something hits you from the blind side, and you're like, what, what, what? what? So, so that was, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Just a uh, really quick aside, um, kind of, I didn't have that exact thing happen yesterday. But um, yesterday, uh, if you're listening to this and you're you're in Detroit, you probably know that we lost power in downtown Detroit and throughout much of the campus of Wayne State yesterday. And I was uh, had actually already started my class when um, we had to cancel um, abruptly. So I had to cancel after we'd already started the screening. But it was a very strange thing that kind of jolted me back to the the nature of the, the the time we live in because when I walked into the room turns on the lights and shut the film off saying that the you know the campus had um, been closed mm-hmm. and classes canceled I actually had somebody come up to me and um, very nervously said is everything okay has there been a threat uh-huh, yeah. and I said no no it's just a power outage but it it, it kind of it momentarily made me you know, take pause and think. Yeah, this is this is this is the the time we live in, um, especially sure. when you're working on a college campus. That that's the it's it's sad and, and it's, a bit. You know, it's really when funny that's you the first thing that. that people people think of. 
you know, you just jogged my memory by saying that because I was uh, working on my master's at Wayne State in 2001. I was I was halfway through it, and um, you know, on 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 September 11th, I I woke up like everybody else and watched the events unfold. And of course, I had class that night. I had class with uh, uh, Professor Matt Seeger at that time, who later became the chair of our department, is now Dean Seeger, uh, dean dean of the College of Fine Performing Communicating Arts, and 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 uh, at Wayne State. And and Matt is a uh, you know among other things a, a crisis management scholar. So it was absolute perfect timing to to be in a class with someone with that uh, that area of expertise because. Couple nights later, when we did meet, we were able to start really, you know, asking questions and start contextualizing sort of the, the madness and the atrocity of it all. So, um, I, I, I forever am sort of bound to Wayne State memories when that happened as well. Yeah, that's. Uh, I didn't think we were going to share 9/11 stories, but uh, I was actually at the fitness center at Wayne State when the first plane hit. I was on the treadmill or the uh, treadmill with the, um, the stationary bike, um, exercising, and the first plane hit and I was like, oh, that's weird. I didn't, I thought it was a small plane or something. And I we were talking to my friend Deborah, and I said, she was there too. And I was like, hey, let's go plane just at the World Trade Center. <laughs> and I walked home and uh, in the four blocks it took me to get home, the second plane had hit. And I, I turned the TV on. And you know what? I haven't been to that fitness center since in 12 years. Now, I mean, you know, correlation is not causation. I'm a lazy bastard, you know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah, so for me too, that fitness center is is tied to that moment as well. Um, and you know, going back to what Chris said too, I know there are a couple times since then that Wayne State certain buildings have been closed for bomb threats and things mm -hmm. like that, and they're you know super sensitive about that. And probably you know you're probably better off being careful than than you know kind of yeah. I think I remember just last semester of winter, the General Lectures was closed because of a bomb threat. Right. Right. So. Um, so, pretty grim topic here, but uh, we have a great interview coming up <laughs> with, uh, with Ian Olney. Great. And we're going to talk about Ian Olney about uh, Euro horror. So. Right, which is obviously, you know, I, I probably no secret to anybody who was the, uh, who spearheaded the, <laughs> the topic for this one. Uh, and in, in our interview with Ian, definitely, you know, that all, all that information comes comes boiling to the surface, and I explain how and why we we sort of met online, and and you know the, the connection we share, and uh, the the mutual love and adoration for these types of films that we share. So I I hope and anticipate that everybody will find this to be a really engaging and really informative podcast because we're talking about a a, a sort of subgenre subset of the larger genre of of you know horror. And we're looking, and it's largely international in its discourse that we talk about this. So hopefully, you guys, will find this pretty enlightening, uh, because Euro horror is, you know, it, it's not your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill horror. It's not something that everybody knows. Yeah, True. That's for I, sure. Yeah, they certainly may know that they know that there are European horror films, but they're right. not, sure, they're, not sure. they're not really familiar with the the enclaves of of them all. You know, the yeah, national, definitely. National character. Uh, expressed through some of the uh, Italian cinemas, Spanish cinemas, the German, the British, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think this uh, this interview will not only be uh, entertaining but also educational for a lot of people because this is a you know an era an area that is probably not like you said not as well known as others. So uh, we certainly look forward to your feedback. 
uh, you can reach us at uh, that's a rap show.com. You can reach us on Twitter at uh, rap podcast. Uh, you can catch us on Facebook. Um, all that stuff is linked on that's a rap show.com. We love hearing comments and uh, also suggestions for future episodes. Yes, by all means. Welcome to uh, Principal Photography. Today we have Ian Olney, uh, and I'm going to let Nick do the introduction. Okay, very good. Yes. Well, uh, today uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited to have somebody whom I've, I've more or less uh, known uh, through the marvels of, of the internet um, for several years now. When I was uh, doing research on my dissertation, there, as you guys know, well know, there just aren't that, weren't that many scholars uh, writing anything new in my particular area, except Ian, and I had gotten a hold of his uh, dissertation, which was playing dead, the spectatorship, and oh, I forgot, Ian, what was the official title of the dissertation? It was uh, Playing Dead, Spectatorship, Performance, and Euro Horror Cinema. Which I thought was a great title, uh, by the way. <laughs> I think it's a great title. I know that for the for the actual book, it was changed. Um, and we struck up a bit of a friendship. I had started citing him liberally in my work, and so today it's a great honor to actually finally meet him, bring him on the show, and talk about uh, the dissertation that actually turned into his, uh, his manuscript and then is a recent publication with Indiana University Press of, uh, from January of this year, if I'm not mistaken. And the new title is Euro Horror, Classic European Horror Cinema in Contemporary American Culture. And it's part of their New Directions in National Cinemas series. So Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, I'm, I'm personally, I'm taking the lead on this because not only do do our interests intersect, obviously, but um, we're both, you know, it's it's clear from both of our writings that we're pretty, you know, we're pretty passionate about about Euro horror and this this entire sort of uh, milieu that was for so long not part of uh, an, uh, any sort of like national or international dialogue. So it's 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 going to be a lot of fun to talk to you about that. I know that Eric also has read a piece. Uh, what was it called, Eric? Uh, it was that two, uh, <laughs> I don't have the title in front of me now, but the okay. 2009 piece he did about digital cinema. Mm-hmm. So I'll be so, asking you about that later. Okay. <laughs> so that's gonna, I think that's going to be our, uh, our 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 way forward into this. And so the first thing I want to do for listeners is to uh, affiliate Ian with where he's uh, currently uh, teaching, which is go ahead, Ian. Uh, I'm a, an associate professor in the English and Humanities Department at York College of Pennsylvania in York, PA. In York, PA, exactly. And um, I wanted to talk to you about uh, pretty much the the sort of like ground zero for all this, which is which was and 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 is to some degree, I think the the struggle, the the ongoing struggle for horror scholarship to find. Uh, legitimization. You know, we finally, we finally, it seems to have arrived in, in many ways, shapes, and forms. Uh, but factors of of taste and uh, canonical texts had dominated discourse for so long uh, that we had we had a lot of trouble, sort of, not only finding stuff written about what we were passionate about, but finding ways in which we could write about it that would be. Um, I, I hate to use the phrase uh, legitimate, but but that's basically it. So, in your opinion, Ian, what 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 factors um, eventually 
came. I think you you ascribe a lot of it to cultural studies being the breakthrough, less emphasis on the text and more emphasis on the cultural forces creating them. But could you bring us into the world and talk about how how, how hard it was in the, in the beginning to actually be able to find a lot written about, or let alone, you know, continental European horror. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think you really have to go back to the 1960s um, because that's when film studies emerged as, as a discipline. And at the time, um, it wasn't taken very seriously in academia. Um, you know, literature was the gold standard, um, the great novels, the short stories, uh, poetry, and um, uh, Cinema was seen as 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 crass in, in comparison, um, and uh, the way that the first film studies scholars uh, who established the discipline were able to do it was by mobilizing um, a certain amount of of cultural capital behind um, great works of film art. So what they did in essence was to um, distinguish, uh, in many cases, using the the newly imported auteur theory. Uh, to distinguish between um, uh, mass culture uh, cinema and uh, the work of directors like uh, Hitchcock or Renoir or Ford or Hawks or Fellini uh, and say, um, you're right about these movies over here, uh, these, these kind of um, lowbrow uh, you know, comedies and horror films, but um, there are these other movies, these great films, uh, that are works of art in their own right, and that stand uh, shoulder to shoulder with the great works of of literature. So, so they were able to to sell uh, the discipline, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, in those terms. Um, the problem was that that, uh, for a number of years, essentially put the study of um, quote unquote lowbrow cinema, popular cinema, uh, off off limits. Um, and and I think the horror film in particular was a victim uh, of this, and it only got worse for the horror film in the 1970s, um, without going into too much esoteric uh, film theory, um, with the rise of screen theory um, and uh, other other sorts of, of theory, uh, feminist theory, Marxist theory, um, that essentially scapegoated popular cinema as a, a tool. Mm -hmm. of the dominant ideological uh, order. Um, it, it really wasn't, as you say, until the 80s uh, with the rise of, of, of cultural studies and film that, that people started paying attention to horror cinema and um, studying it. Now, what's interesting is that uh, the same thing happened all over again, in my view, in the 1980s with, with horror cinema, mm -hmm. um, which is that uh, a, a certain body of horror films was designated as legitimate, right. uh, and then everything outside was sort of beyond uh, the pale, uh, and that included Euro horror, uh, of course. Especially, um, <laughs> yeah, sadly, exactly. So, uh, and, and I think the reasons uh, to, to to get back to your original question, I think the reasons for that were were many. Um, I, I think that in comparison with um, the canonical American uh, horror films, the, the classic Universal films or the Val Luton films from the 1940s or even more recent films from the 60s and 70s, uh, Night of the Living Dead, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, those sorts of films. Um, in comparison with those films, uh, Euro horror movies were, first of all, uh, uh, cheap. I mean, they were they were exploitation films. Sure. Um, they were made, uh, in most cases, to make a quick buck. 
uh, and so they didn't have much respectability. They, they lacked uh, they lacked uh, dignity, so to speak, right. yep. uh, in comparison with these other films. Um, another factor was that they were um, undeniably sensational. They seemed to revel in violence, in gore, in nudity, in sexuality. Uh, and uh, to, to really take those things to the um, extreme in comparison with uh, especially classic uh, American horror films, which were considered more uh, more tasteful. Sure. Um, uh, they also sort of lacked the the, the standard uh, narrative equipment of um, American <laughs> horror films. Uh, they they seemed slapdash in many ways, uh, difficult to follow. Um, uh, and, and just sort of bizarre uh, in comparison with uh, American films. And then one final factor that I might mention is just that in many film scholars' minds, uh, European cinema equaled European art cinema. So when people thought say, of European films, they thought of Fellini and Godard and uh, Truffaut uh, and Bergman. Uh, not of Argento and Bavo, Bava and Franco and, and, and these other guys who've come to know and love uh, so well. So, um, you know, in, in their minds, popular European cinema, uh, like your horror, just, just didn't exist. Uh, best, to, best to ignore it, sweep it under the rug. So I, I think for a combination of reasons, uh, it's really not until, you know, fairly recently, the last decade or so, um, that these movies are starting to get their due. Yeah, you know, that's, uh, thank you for that. I'm sure the, 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 the listener who was unfamiliar with the genealogy of all this will be really quite up to speed right now. And you, you gave a wonderful uh, leaping point on to another question I was going to ask you, which you just arrived at quite organically, which is simply that a lot of um, European art cinema is explicitly linked to European horror cinema. Uh, they they tend to uh, traverse the same ground both narratively and aesthetically, and I thought it might be good for you to sort of expand upon that and certainly how some films like Eyes Without a Face or Valerie in Her Week of Wonders or Peeping Tom uh, are double niche films, you know, art mm -hmm. European art films as well as European your Euro horror films as well, sort of simultaneously. Right. Well, the great irony here is is that um, you know while film sc uh, scholars were working so hard to maintain <laughs> this this clear bright line between uh, European popular cinema and European art cinema, uh, they're really entangled, as you as you say. Mm -hmm. They come out of the same tradition. These movies were all being made at the same time. They were responding to the same uh, cultural uh, and historical pressures. Um, and there's many many examples of. Uh, European horror movies taking their cues from European art films and vice versa. Vice versa. Um, I'll just give you a couple of my uh, of my favorite uh, examples, and, and these are um, ones that uh, I refer to in the book. So, um, uh, to to take the example of a European horror film inspired by a European art film, uh, Dario Argento's uh, 1975 film Deep Red mm -hmm. is uh, it's a murder mystery film. Um, and uh, with David Hemmings, and it's 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 uh, about a jazz musician played by Hemmings who who's who's trying to solve um, a series of uh, of murders. And the the film is essentially, in many ways, a a, a sort of a, a remake um, of uh, a, a movie directed by uh, Michelangelo Antonioni, 
uh, called uh, Blow Up, uh, which was released in 1966. It was his first English language film, and that film also stars David Hemmings. Uh, in this movie, he's a photojournalist uh, who's attempting to solve uh, a murder. So you have Argento uh, taking the lead actor and the, the basic premise from a very famous Italian art film and um, putting them work in this um, horror thriller, uh, this uh, giallo film um, that he created. Uh, but the influence went both ways. Uh, and a, a, a good example uh, of that is a, um, a segment from uh, sort of an omnibus uh, art horror film uh, called Spirits of the Dead. Oh yeah, uh, one of my was, favorites. Um, yeah. Released in the in the late '60s, one of the the segments in this film, uh, which is a collection of short short uh, art horror films, uh, was directed by Federico Fellini, uh, and it's called Toby Dammit. It's essentially a, a, an adaptation of uh, an Edgar Allan Poe uh, short story, starring Terrence Stamp, and uh, it's basically about a a, a, a dissipated um, English actor arriving in Italy. Uh, to play a role in a film, um, uh, but uh, all sorts of things uh, go wrong. Uh, he begins having visions of the devil, uh, who in the film is represented by a pretty small um, uh, girl in a white dress with a red bouncing ball. And, and that image, uh, the image of a little girl, uh, pretty, blonde, with a red bouncing ball, as uh, is evil was lifted from a, uh, a Mario Bava film uh, that was made uh, a few years earlier called Kill Baby Kill. This is mm. the English title, of course, yes. uh, which um, was all about a ghost terrorizing a small Italian village, and, and, and the, the ghost was uh, of, of uh, a little girl um, who always made her presence known through a, a little bouncing ball. So you, you sort of have a, the influence going both ways, and I think the end result. Uh, was um, a situation in which uh, the Euro horror films, many of them that we're talking about, uh, were uh, in many ways art films. And, and the art films of the time, uh, many of them, I think, could in some ways be classified as uh, horror films. You know, you think of famous stories like um, uh, the, the story of how Ingmar Bergman's film, uh, Virgin Spring, sure. um, inspired uh, later uh, American uh, horror films like Last House on the Left. Uh, and you begin to realize that the line between horror and art isn't nearly as distinct as many scholars uh, have believed. If I could just quickly ask a question um, sure, sure. that might be beneficial for our listeners. You mentioned the Giallo film. Um, if you could maybe... Um, just take a minute to go through the different types of the the Euro horror horror film, uh, sure. you know, the Giallo or, or the the S and M or the 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 zombie and kind of the the things that differentiate. Yeah, um, right. Uh, so one of the things that's so fascinating about Euro horror is that um, it, it sort of uh, it invented its own subgenres mm -hmm. of uh, of horror, um, unique bodies of of film that don't really have an analog in American horror. <laughs> One of the most famous is the Giallo film, um, which is uh, basically uh, a murder mystery film. Uh, it's a type of film that originated in Italy in uh, the early 1960s. Uh, Giallo is the uh, Italian word for yellow. Uh, and the reason that these films go by that name is that 
Um, the movies were inspired by a series of Italian murder mystery novels called Giallo novels. And they were called Giallo novels because they were published by the Mondadori Publishing Company in Italy with yellow covers. Um, and the first Giallo were sort of Italian translations of famous um, uh, American and British mystery writers like uh, Agatha Christie, but then Italian uh, writers began writing uh, their own uh, Giallo novels and they became very popular in the years after World War II. So there was sort of a natural progression from that to film. Uh, and you have the first Giallo films kind of emerging in the uh, in the early to mid-1960s. And uh, uh, Mario Bava, one of the filmmakers I mentioned a moment ago, was uh, instrumental in popularizing these films. He made um, The Girl Who Knew Too Much uh, and Blood and Black Lace, uh, two, two early uh, Giallo films. And, and they're basically, uh, in some ways, precursors to the slasher movie. Uh, they always feature Black Lace. a killer yeah, really who's kind of the foundation. A, yeah, who's sort of a faceless, uh, nameless um, shadow uh, who um, kills a series of people, usually young, attractive women. And there's a, an amateur or professional sleuth who's uh, trying to figure out the killer's identity and bring him or her to justice. So this is one famous um, sort of subgenre of, uh, of European horror. Um, the other really famous one that I might mention just quickly is, as, as uh, a different example is the, the cannibal film, um, which uh, has never really um, uh, been popularized as an American genre of, of horror, but was... Um, Incredibly popular in the in the uh, 70s and 80s uh, as a European genre of of, of horror, and, and these movies are about uh, white American or British explorers uh, who uh, travel to the jungles of South America or East Asia and run afoul of indigenous cannibal tribes who <laughs> run them down and uh, disembowel and castrate and uh, otherwise kill them in graphic mm -hmm. uh, fashion and then of course consume them. The, the most famous example of uh, the cannibal film subgenre is of course Cannibal Holocaust mm -hmm. uh, which is a film from 1980 that uh, is still controversial and, and, and quite notorious even today. So uh, it's interesting that you have these uh, sort of subgenres of, of European horror that, that you don't really find so much in American horror, although they often have inspired or influenced uh, later uh, American horror cycles. Absolutely, yeah. Eric? Really the only exposure I have to any kind of European horror is what Nick has brought over, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen some things, and you know, he's burned some things from me, and um, and it's, a lot of it's very interesting. And I, I think the what you're talking about, about the um, connection between the European independent cinema or, you know, kind of art cinema, I guess. Um, and the horror is very interesting because it sounds like there's an interplay that goes both directions where they borrow from each other in certain ways. But um, as far as film scholarship, the stuff is, is still, um, like you say, somewhat, somewhat new, right? It is. Yeah. It, it, it really, uh, you'll find a uh, scattered references here and there in, in, in books on, on horror cinema, um, but it, it's never really uh, received the attention it, it deserves, I, I, I think. There have been a few um, books to come out in the last few years, edited volumes with essays on, on Eurohor uh, and that sort of thing. There was a book on the Giallo film that came out a few years back. Um, but uh, there's not a, um, you know, there hasn't been a sustained, coherent body of work on it. And, and that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons I wanted to write 
uh, my book was just to, to sort of bring attention um, to it and, and to stake a claim for its significance because um, I do think that there's been this tendency even in horror film criticism uh, to dismiss these films um, uh, as, as, as unimportant or derivative um, because many of them were, in fact, inspired by uh, uh, American films, and this is another issue that we can yeah. that we can talk about if if you like. Uh, so they have this reputation as being cheap, sensationalistic, uh, derivative. Now, of course, they have a reputation as being dated. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, most of them are 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 dubbed rather than subtitled, uh, and, and watching them is kind of like watching a kung fu film from the 70s. You know, there's mm -hmm. there's kind of a built-in. Um, uh, Bit of ridiculousness in them that I think also has prevented some people from taking them, uh, from taking them uh, seriously. And of course, they have the dated, you know, prog rock and jazz, you know, acid jazz, and, <laughs> and, and the fashion and these films. You know, it's all, especially the ones from the '60s and '70s. It's it's all very dated. So it's it's easy, I think, to to dismiss them in kind of a superficial way. But what's fascinating for me is that when you look at them more closely, you realize that they're historically important for the reasons we've been talking about, for the cross influence between. Euro horror and, and and European art cinema for the way in which Euro horror has inspired American horror uh, movies and also uh, mainstream directors like um, Quentin Tarantino. Um, but uh, above and beyond that, I think these movies are interesting on their own terms. Uh, I think they're very different in many respects from American horror. I, I think um, politically, in many ways, they're more interesting oh, yes. uh, than American uh, horror films, even though many of them have the reputation of being, you know, sort of misogynist or, or, or racist. Um, and uh, uh, in many ways, they're what horror film scholars have been looking for in American horror, uh, which is, um, as I say in my book, uh, a nexus not just of revolting bodies, but of bodies in, in revolt. revolt. So, so the idea of, of a radical or at least a progressive horror cinema has been kind of the holy grail. And, and, and you know, many books and articles and conference papers that have been devoted to horror have been on this uh, topic. And uh, I think there's a wealth of examples uh, of this kind of horror that could be drawn from Euro horror, and at the same time, of course, um, there are all, all sorts of examples of, of you know, uh, reactionary horror uh, to come out of uh, to Europe uh, of Europe. But um, you know, I think they're interesting for all these reasons. Yeah, you know, I think they also. I mean, one of the things that attracted to me, me to them in the first place, uh, growing up in sort of a, a bicultural atmosphere, was the very things that many people find uh, perhaps unsophisticated about them now, or in the last twenty years, which are the things you were just mentioning, Ian, uh, the fact that they are time capsules, the fact that they do embody a, a, a late 1960s, early 1970s, go-go booted, disco, <laughs> you know, bright colors, you know, mystery machine vibe mm -hmm. is to me one of the ways in that I loved so much. Um, in particular, Spain, you know, I mean, obviously that's, that's while, you were, while, while you were brave enough to tackle a macro sort of continental uh, approach to Euro horror. I had specifically focused on one country, but of course, in my case, the problem was <laughs> I was dealing with a country that had explicitly, explicitly forbidden the production of horror movies ever since uh, Franco took power in '39. So, um, I, it is, as you say, exactly what horror scholars I think have been looking for. They were just too, uh, too blind to see. Really, I thought. I think maybe they felt that. Euro horror writ large was sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel, akin to something like Hers Herschel Gordon Lewis's uh, canon of work. 
I think that's probably right. And there are some interesting connections to be made between uh, American exploitation like that or, or like Roger Corman's films, for mm -hmm. example. Um, uh, although they perhaps uh, are, are rung above uh, Euro horror in many in many scholars' uh, minds, it's, it's interesting that it's only after we got to the American exploitation uh, film in in you know in the 90s that now now we can talk about uh, European uh, horror, um, which in my mind is actually uh, a, a rung or two above mm -hmm. uh, many examples of American exploitation uh, horror cinema. <laughs> So we, we it's been a it's been a, a long and winding road, but but it seems like we've arrived at a point finally um, where um, people are interested uh, in in talking uh, about this, and I, I think that the podcast is an example of that. I was uh, also just invited recently to speak at what I think is the first international symposium on Eurohor. Oh, uh, it's being held in London uh, this October, uh, and it's being held uh, at the Institute for Contemporary Art in Congratulations. London. Congratulations. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm really excited about it. It's, it's uh, being sponsored by the University of Kent. And um, to, me, to me, that's just one more example of um, the fact that, uh, you know, there's finally some recognition in academia of, um, uh, of the significance of these films. Well, they're all the richer for having you there. That's wonderful. Congratulations, Ian. Thank you. Um, let's let's in fact uh, take that opportunity to sort of get into some of the nuts and bolts of of your your assertions in the book. Can we talk for a minute about um, the dialogue between um, the spectator and screen and your notions on uh, performance and uh, performativity in your horror and how it relates or doesn't relate to or differently relates to uh, that of, of traditional contemporary U.S. horror film. Sure, um, you know this. The, uh, this I really owe this insight uh, to a professor at the University of Nebraska Lincoln, which is where I studied, um, where I, where I uh, got my PhD. Um, I took some classes in art history uh, there, and there was there's a wonderful wonderful uh, professor of art history, uh, Kristen J. Mamiya who um, got me really interested in performance art and, and in particular body performance art. I, I got really interested in these performance artists who were crucifying themselves and you know having themselves shot and things like this for the sake <laughs> of uh, their, their art. And um, I, I began to I began to make a connection between that uh, and, and on a you know a different order of magnitude here of course um, horror film spectatorship because I was you know, I've always been interested in this question I've always been a huge fan of horror films um, and I've always wondered or, or I've often wondered and I often get asked this question as someone who's written a book on horror and someone who teaches uh, classes on horror why do people like horror movies um, <laughs> uh, you know. It, it, something that, that sets out to, to, to terrify you or to disgust you, uh, why would you subject yourself to something like that? And I started thinking about it in terms of performativity. Um, mm -hmm. I started thinking that maybe it had something in common um, with uh, body performance, um, something maybe even in common with, uh, you know, body enhancements like um, piercings and things like that that might be um, painful mm -hmm. but at the same time are kind of badges of honor uh, in the way that watching a really unsettling horror film like Cannibal Holocaust might be painful or disturbing sure. or unsettling but a badge of honor at least um, 
among uh, certain groups of people. So um, that's really where the idea started, and, and she helped me. Um, she helped me make that uh, that, that connection. And, and what I began to do was to to sort of think about how these Euro horror films, in, in a unique way, in a way that we don't see as often in American horror cinema, foster a kind of performativity on the part of viewers. Um, and I, I think this happens in, in a number of ways. I, I think it happens at a, at a textual level, certainly. So if you look at the stories told by these films, and more importantly, how those stories are told, um, how the camera is used, how the editing is used, how color and music are used, mm -hmm. um, I think these are films that, that uh, attempt to incite a certain amount of performativity on the part of of, of, of spectators. Um, mm -hmm. To give a concrete example, sure. uh, one one that I discuss in the in the book. Um, there's a wonderful uh, zombie film uh, directed by Lucio Fulci, uh, an Italian filmmaker. It's, it's called Zombie, or at least mm -hmm. that's the uh, the title under which it's known in in the U.S. Um, and it is a, a film that is in part inspired by uh, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, which came out the year before it was made. Uh, but it's also a throwback to the old voodoo zombie films of the 30s and 40s, White Zombie and uh, I Walked with a Zombie. What's interesting about it to me is that it takes what strikes me as being uh, a post-colonial stance toward mm -hmm. the zombie story. In other words, rather than the zombies being the bad guys, uh, and, and the zombies in this film, I should say, are, are mostly um, the reanimated corpses of, of, of uh, the colonized, of, of, of former slaves, uh, whereas the victims in the film uh, are uh, the perpetrators of, of colonialism, the benefactors of, uh, of imperialism. And in the film, uh, largely through the camera work, we're encouraged to identify with the zombies as opposed to the <laughs> yes. putative heroes of the film. And there's a famous scene in the movie that takes place in the middle of the jungle. The, the white um, uh, protagonists in the film, there's a, there's a group of, of four uh, survivors in the yes. movie. <laughs> We're trying to escape the island, and um, uh, they've been running through the jungle pursued by zombies. Uh, and they stop and rest uh, for a moment. Uh, unfortunately for them, uh, they've picked uh, an ancient... Um, graveyard uh, to rest <laughs> in. And, and in this graveyard are the bodies of the old uh, Spanish conquistadors who uh, first colonialized the island. And these zombies rise up uh, and uh, attack them, um, kill one, uh, bite another, and chase, chase the rest uh, off. And, and in this sequence, um, we're shown events largely from the perspective of the zombies. There's a great camera shot where the, the, the camera literally sort of uh, raises up the way that a corpse might from a grave and the dirt falls away from the lens. So moment. we are the zombie in that mm -hmm. moment. And when the zombie attacks and uh, rips the throat out of uh, one of one of the uh, unfortunate victims, um, we see that from the zombie's point of view uh, as well. So there are these little moments in, in Euro horror cinema across these films where um, we're encouraged to identify with certain characters in very interesting and somewhat transgressive um, ways. Chris? Well, that's really interesting that when you mentioned this, the spectator is performative. And do you think possibly also that this um, the, the interest in these types of films was 
perhaps like a on on the part of spectators a rebellion against kind of the the highbrow notions of art cinema or or other types of other types of cinema. I'm I'm specifically thinking of how uh, like Rocky Horror Picture Show um, when it started, you know, it really bombed in the U.S. and then it kind of got onto this midnight movie circuit, which was in and of itself the the whole concept of the midnight movie was a bit of a was rebellion going to see a movie at midnight at late you know it, it was it was it was seen as as transgressive so do you think that this is that's part of where where this is coming from absolutely uh yeah i mean the, the other uh, way in which performativity becomes a factor here of course is is at the level of spectatorship and uh, it has to do with what uh viewers and, and fans in particular do with these films um, so you, you have the films at a textual level kind of inciting this, this performativity, and then you have uh, spectators and fans uh, of these films using them uh, in ways that could be considered performative. In other words, they're using the movies to accomplish um, particular personal and perhaps even um, political or countercultural goals. And I think the example that you gave is a really great one. So uh, you have viewers who champion Eurohor as a way of rejecting um, mainstream cinema. Um, art cinema perhaps as well, but I think in particular the cinema of Hollywood, and I think you see that more and more today uh, especially, where um, you know many viewers of fans of horror have become increasingly unhappy uh, with contemporary Hollywood horror, uh, which seems to be um, you know an endless parade of remakes and sequels and these sorts of sure. things. It's, it, it's right. played out yeah. in many respects. Um, you know, the, the rare film aside, um, the, the Conjuring or, uh, or, or other um, recent sure. films have, have done well with fans. But um, I, I think there has been this sense where, uh, again, being a fan of Eurohor has become kind of a badge of honor and a way to distinguish yourself from the run-of-the-mill horror fan who's sort of a dupe <laughs> yeah. of Hollywood, exactly. uh, if you will. <laughs> A really good example of this, and, and one of the films I had the most fun writing about in this book is um, a little movie called Troll 2. In fact, you know, uh, let me stop you right there, Ian. I was yeah. just going to say that um, it was a great uh, moment for me to come in and say that uh, the things that uh, Ian is specifically addressing here, as well as that Chris asked about, are um, are covered in the book in sort of his pre-case studies, case studies, which are House by the Cemetery and and Troll 2 and the ensuing documentary made about Troll 2, which is the best, worst movie. And, right. <laughs> yeah, you should take a second here and just talk about, because these are your pre-case studies that sort of figure your general assertions regarding uh, performativity and spectatorship via the text and the audience. Right. So this is part one of the book, um, which is where I sort of lay out my case for taking Eurohor seriously. Uh, and it, it's basically uh, an argument along the lines of the ones of the one that we've been discussing um, uh, you know, uh, to this point, um, uh, that that um, uh, they deserve to be taken seriously because uh, of this performative dimension um, that we've discussed. And so there's a, there's a there's a chapter devoted to um, the textual performance of Eurohor, and that uh, that chapter takes um, Lucio Fulci's uh, movie House by the Cemetery as an example. And then the following chapter is on spectatorship and performance, or, or performance at the level of spectatorship. And uh, my example there is is this film Troll 2, uh, which <laughs> I can't is, help but is in some <laughs> ways, uh, it, it may be a movie you've heard of. It's, it's, it's a cult hit 
well beyond the the borders of of Eurohorse and I mean there there are people who are uh, are rabid fans of this movie who have never seen another Euro horror film. So it's kind of taken on a cultural prominence that a lot of other Euro horror movies don't have. Um, and it's, it's it's sort of an anomalous Euro horror it film in, in a way. I mean, it comes really at the tail end of the classic era of Euro horror. Uh, it was made in the late 80s uh, by a, an Italian filmmaker named Claudio Fragasso, uh, and it was actually shot in the United States uh, in rural Utah. <laughs> Uh, this is at a uh, at a time when it had become increasingly difficult for Euro horror filmmakers to get their movies shown uh, theatrically uh, or any other way, for that matter, in the United States. Um, Hollywood had, had sort of, by this point, um, uh, had a lock. You know, it 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 it, had, um, it was resurgent in the the Reagan era, and and it sort of um, uh, locked up the American market. So. Um, this was Fergasso's uh, desperate attempt to, to make a film that would appeal to an American audience and that would have a chance of getting shown in theaters or maybe on uh, cable television. Uh, unfortunately, in many respects, it's just a fantastically bad film. It, it, I mean, just in every way you could conceive. By uh, all measurable criteria. It is by just, all measurable yes, criteria. It's, it's horrible. Uh, by all measurable mainstream <laughs> film criteria. Uh, um, so, uh, so, it, but it, but it's one of those movies that's um, so bad it's good. In fact, it, it's kind of the epitome uh, of that. It's just a hugely entertaining uh, film, um, and it's one yes, that yeah. uh, fans of Euro horror have really um, adopted and um, proselytized for. Uh, it, it, you know, it has its own fan. Websites. It has, you know, uh, profiles, social network profiles devoted to it. Uh, if you go to YouTube, you can find all sorts of clips, remixes of scenes from uh, Troll Two. Sure, so I mean, yeah. it's clear that fans aren't just watching this film; um, they're in a very performative way doing something with it. Um, mm. They're 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 using it as ammunition in some cases against mainstream Hollywood filmmaking. Mm. You'll find lots of testimonials online with people talking about how much more um, they like yeah, Troll sure. 2 than X film. I, there was right. even one blog I quote in the book that uh, that uh, stakes a claim that, that Troll 2 is is a film superior to Citizen Kane, um, <laughs> uh, Orson Welles film, uh, that, that routinely tops AFI's list of right. the best movies uh, ever made, right? Um, and 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 they're expressing their 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 fan devotion to the film in, in all sorts of other ways uh, as well. So it's performative. It's 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 uh, yeah. It's a truly question of um, personalization of uh, cult worship. There's no question. It's uh, well, you know um, in many in the same way that many many films have achieved that status through original marginalization and and it's wow. I mean yeah, I've watched Troll Two and the documentary behind it. Now of course. I have not adopted that particular viewing strategy of the film, but and I'm not trying to place myself above it. I enjoyed it for you know I enjoyed it very much. You know it's it's you know because it's it's partially my thing, but but um yeah I'm not I would I'm not denigrating anybody's um, uh, adoration for that film. Certainly not everyone's cup of tea. Uh, yeah, but he's right. True, it's it's not there, but it it fits beautifully. Uh, in in your discussion of it in relation to your work and 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 that and I think that's really one of the great things about the book is early on in the prehistory there by setting up house house by the cemetery and troll two uh, it's our way forward into the the upcoming chapters where you do uh, more fleshed out case studies um, and um, yeah I mean, obviously I don't want to have you go throughout the whole book I want people to go buy the book but um, uh, yeah so the 
this is a great example. Troll two, for example, of like repurposing, uh, remediating, viewing methods. Um, and uh, I guess that, that brings me into uh, something that I wanted to talk about. Kind of um, writ large, we're here is in in you know, and this is a, a this kind of just a simple personal question outside of of uh, scholarship. But do you have yourself a a, a fav one particular favorite Euro horror film that you saw as when you were young in your formative years that has held up beautifully, or is there something you've come across recently, or is there a couple of films that you you would you would say are your absolute favorites, or is it just too hard to pick? Well, it's always hard to pick. Um, I, you know, I, I tend to gravitate um, as much as I like the, uh, the the wild and over the top films from the uh, from the seventies and and uh, and early eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, I often find myself gravitating towards um, some of the more foundational texts from the I early to mid sixties. I'm a huge fan of uh, Mario Baba, uh, for example. Um, in, in many ways, he's he's sort of the godfather mm-hmm. of of classic uh, European horror cinema. And, um, uh, you know, movies by him, uh, Black Sunday, Black Sabbath, uh, Blood and Black Lace, uh, Kill Baby Kill. Um, these are fantastic uh, horror films. Um, Ricardo Freda from, from the same sure. era. Uh, I think he's a, he's a wonderful filmmaker. Um, uh, so I often do, uh, Antonio Margheriti, uh, again, uh, a wonderful filmmaker. I, I often do find myself gravitating towards those filmmakers. But As do I. Um, you know the the giallo films from the '70s that we were talking about earlier, uh, Argento. Uh, I, I'm I'm a big fan of of at least some of uh, Jess Franco's work. I, I don't know that anyone could be uh, claimed to be a fan of all of his work. He made um, uh, you know well over 200 films and just passed away uh, earlier uh, this year, still going strong. I, I think he directed uh, some really interesting. Uh, movies um, uh, and, and these are these are movies that, as you know, uh, Nick, often um, are, are uh, some of the ones that that people are most reluctant to talk about. If you take a movie like Sadomania, for example, sure, sure. Um, you know, he, one of his uh, women in prison films, mm-hmm. uh, or one of his uh, you know insane uh, monster movies, uh, you know, one of his Dracula films, or or the Rites of Frankenstein, or oh, a, a movie like that. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, these are just, in many ways, wonderfully inventive yes. uh, films um, that I think repay multiple uh, uh, viewings. Um, I, I like the um, uh, the S and M horror films that he made uh, as well that I write about in that chapter in, in the book, uh, Venus and Furs, sure, yeah. uh, the Eugenie films. Um, these are, you know, really, really interesting uh, movies that I think you know, Lesbo, yeah, really rank um, alongside. Um, the most interesting work that the '70s uh, produced in terms of either genre or art or experimental cinema. I agree. I, some of those early, really early efforts, the stateless efforts from Spain, uh, Miss Muerte, you know, and um, an awful Dr. Orloff, which kicked it, kicked off yep. the whole thing, uh, are really kind of like. I mean, I, I use this phrase, you know, tongue slightly in cheek, but they're little mini masterpieces. I mean, they're absolutely just gorgeous to look at and really do set the tone. Uh, and shades of things to come, but in, in particular for Spain, for sure. Oh, which which brings me to Spain. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. Certainly, um, for me, it's all about it's about those early early late fifties, early sixties efforts from Freda, from Bava, from Margaretti, and uh, and then yeah, I, I really do get uh, sort of enamored with some of the late sixties, early seventies uh, international co-productions that Spain had mounted. Things like um, uh, Horror Express or or mm-hmm. um, 
or Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue. These these are really elegant, almost textbook examples of of the continental Euro horror film. And Sarah Dor, I think, is a is an extremely important. Oh boy! <laughs> sorry, I got a little excited there. That's my wheelhouse. <laughs> Go ahead, Ian. I'm sorry. No, no. I, I, I think that um, I think that his work, um, you know, ranks uh, up there with the best uh, that Euro horror has to has to offer. The House That Screamed, um, uh, for example, I, I think is is um, a really interesting film that you can sort of see, uh, you know, within Euro horror, you can sort of see traces there already of Suspiria and some of the more famous later horror films in Embryo. In in embryo, absolutely. You know, I write. That's a book I write about pretty heavily in in my book. I mean, uh, excuse me, a film I write about pretty heavily in my book. And and I I make those. I I really assert those same arguments that uh, uh, it is an embryonic form there, and that like in in certain the staging of certain deaths in that film kind of are, are very sort of Argento would become later Argento uh, signatures. Really, there's a there's one particular killing that Serador stages in a in a little garden hothouse area. Yes, and that's uh, I mean it's shot in slow motion. It's fragmented. It's 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 beautiful. I mean, and of course that film benefits as most Euro horror films did, from from you know real veterans of the of of the industry. People like Lily Palmer, for example, add an elegance and a stateliness to the to the production. Uh, of course, and the internationalism I think is important to to emphasize as well. I, you as you mentioned earlier, a lot of these films were international co-productions, European co-productions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that lends credence uh, to the argument that they should really be considered um, uh, collectively, that there is an argument to be made that despite the differences that existed between uh, Spain and, and Italy and France in the 60s and 70s, uh, for example, that there are things tying them together as well, and one of those things is money in many cases. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, w- I will definitely in the, the notes of the show for uh, uh, listeners who aren't familiar with who we're talking about when we say Sarah Dora, we'll, we'll link to, this is a particular uh, filmmaker working in Spain who had just done a couple of horror films, but they were really very, very unforgettable. So I'll make sure to link to those. Yeah. I, I noticed looking at your CV um, that you also, you publish about uh, digital cinema and a film adaptation, I noticed. And I was able to uh, read one of your uh, articles about uh, digital cinema where you argue, and this might actually fold back into Euro cinema in a way, but um, you argue basically that, uh, this is in 2009, that digital cinematography, like the, the, the industry tries to kind of Hide the fact that it's uh, that digital cinematography is digital, more or less, right? Uh, because digital cameras, especially then, were uh, had like almost an infinite depth of field, and they were um, they're good at night, right? And mm-hmm. they try to replicate like a 35 millimeter um, kind of uh, aesthetic, you know. And you you cite David Bordwell in that talking about how um, like with CinemaScope, they tried the 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 new CinemaScope, the, the limitations. Cause the um, the industry like let the industry do new things, but also do the old things in new ways. I guess in a way, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm making your argument way more simpler than it is. That's but right. you uh, but you use um, um, Miami Vice and um, okay. Inland Empire as two oh. examples, right? As two right. separate examples of ways that um, directors might use digital cinematography without without doing that right try to use mm. the full capabilities of the camera and you're in and 
for Miami Vice, you say it's because they there's a I, I haven't seen the movie, but the scene you describe is on a rooftop, and it's got this. Um, it's very you, you describe it as very dizzying because mm-hmm. the um, because everything's in focus basically. There's this really oh, huge depth of field, and you use Lynch as an as a counterpoint who kind of lets you sit in these shadows that you can kind of, which I totally get with Inland Empire, you know, you can kind of just daydream through that film and and everything. So my question is, um, like taking that, um, as kind of a springboard. So now we're, here we are in 2013. Do you see that trend continuing? Uh, Do you see other filmmakers doing the same thing? And then kind of as like a, another branch to the question is, um, in terms of Euro horror or Euro cinema, are are there, uh, um, changing aesthetics in the last maybe decade or so that, um, that have to do with that come about with digital cinematography and you can, you don't have to answer both parts of that question. You can do whatever you want with it. No, it's, (laughs) it's a a really good question. Um, to take the, the, the first part first. Um, yeah. So the, the basic argument that I make in that, in that article you're referring to is that despite the fact that there are, um, unique capabilities and properties inherent to 35 millimeter film cameras and um, uh, standard or high definition digital cameras. Um, what you see, I think still mostly even today is, and, and, and we, and I should note that now almost everything in Hollywood is being shot digitally. In yeah. fact, um, you know, a production of, of, of uh, celluloid film stock and film cameras has, has more or less ceased. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we, mm-hmm. we live in an all-digital world now as far as Hollywood's concerned. But I think even today, uh, the majority of film uh, filmmakers uh, working inside of Hollywood, but also outside of Hollywood, you know, in, in, in independent filmmaking, attempt, um, especially in high definition, to more or less replicate the look of 35 millimeter film, and I think right. the rationale for that is simply that this is what audiences are used to seeing, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it, it also I think has to do with some of the deficiencies of early standard definition digital video. If you go back to the 90s, for example, uh, the graininess of a lot of uh, digital video, the, the low resolution. Mm-hmm. So I think a, a lot of, a lot of it is an attempt to kind of transcend those early limitations of of, of digital video. Um, what interested yeah. me in the article about Michael Mann's uh, remake of Miami Vice uh, and David Lynch's Inland Empire was that it seemed to me that both of these filmmakers in very different ways were intentionally exploiting those unique capabilities and properties of standard and high definition digital video mm-hmm. to, to create a, essentially a digital video aesthetic yeah, as yeah, opposed yeah. Or, or poetic as I say in the article as opposed to um, a, uh, a filmic uh, poetic so in, in the case of Miami Vice as you mentioned uh, this involved um, Michael Mann and his DP really exploiting the depth of field inherent to high definition digital video so you have this kind of almost um, infinite deep focus in in a number of scenes in that film. The one on the rooftop that you mentioned early in the film is, is maybe the most striking example of that, where it just looks like uh, it, it looks like the background goes on forever and everything is sharply in focus, and it does create uh, this kind of um, vertigo that I think is appropriate to the scene, given the fact that it takes place on, on top of a, 
a tall uh, a tall building. Uh, and then in Lynch, it's almost the opposite approach. Um, you know, there he's sort of exploiting what other people might see as the weaknesses of um, digital video. Um, you know, the way in which it renders um, shadows in an almost kind of blocky fashion, or the way in which you get a lot of um, of uh, flares or whiteouts uh, with with mm -hmm. bright uh, lights when you have a contrast between an area of darkness and area of of light. Um, so he's kind of exploiting all of those um, uh, unique properties of digital video in service of, of of the story he's trying to tell, which is this sort of surreal, um, disturbing meditation on identity and performance and. Uh, and some of the things we were talking about earlier. Um, to the second part of your question, I, the impact that digital um, filmmaking has had on Euro horror, uh, you know, more and more mm -hmm. contemporary European horror films are being shot digitally. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see a huge difference in terms of look um, in most cases between those films and contemporary Hollywood films. Uh, my book, I should say, um, really deals with uh, classic European horror cinema, which I right. define as uh, European horror films made from the mid-50s to the mid-80s. I, I do talk a little bit about contemporary European horror cinema in the conclusion, conclusion uh, yeah. to the book, although I don't really get in uh, to, to this question of digital uh, cinema much. Um, I, I will say that, that the argument that I make there is that it's over time become more difficult to tell the difference between European and American horror. Yeah, uh, right. I think a lot of younger European horror filmmakers, not, not all of them, but many of them, um, are more influenced by uh, American horror than they are by earlier European horror. That makes um, sense. Yeah. So, yeah. so the, the the touchstones in in these films become uh, these new European horror films become the work of Toby Hooper or 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 John Carpenter. Exactly. Um, you know, the same guys that are Wes Craven, the same guys who are influencing right. contemporary American horror filmmakers. Which and that's yeah, it's it's a bummer, um, Ian, because uh, in your conclusion, I kind of when I read that, you know, I kind of lament it to some degree because the forces that made Euro horror such so powerful in the first place have been attenuated to some degree. You know. Yeah, they have been. I think largely as a result of globalization. Yeah. Um, you know, the culture, uh, cultures, European cultures are, are not as distinct from American uh, cultures as, as they once were. Um, and, and I guess that extends to the look of these films as well. You know, I, I was focusing more on content, I guess, and, 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 and the opportunity for performativity um, that those films present. Uh, but, but, but I think you could make a similar argument about the look uh, of, of the films themselves. And, and, and certainly you could find some exceptions. I think there's some really interesting horror films coming out of Europe right now that maybe do have uh, a little more in common with your well, horror. You know, that um, reminds and, me. Um, a lot of those are art films, interestingly enough. There's th uh, three comments I was going to make here, um, sort of concluding comments. The first was in relationship to the uh, article that Eric was mentioning. Um, yeah, while, while you were talking, I suddenly thought of Harmony Corinne's Spring Breakers, which was, mm -hmm. is definitely sort of, I don't know if you saw that or not, Ian. But it, I, haven't, I haven't seen it yet. I think you ought to check that out. It very much is to the latter, uh, to the Michael Mann um, Miami Vice remake, and it is so seductive, the cinematography. Now, I don't know if he's shot that on uh, digital or not, but I'm inclined to think so, Harm that Harmony had done that. But that's definitely one you're going to love, I think. And the second thing I was going to say was, uh, I naturally, with with Spain always on the mind, I thought of the Wreck trilogy uh, mm -hmm. when Eric asked mm -hmm. the question about how does how does the uh, digital cinematography factor into the the modern European sensibility or aesthetic. And obviously, the Wreck trilogy is a, a great example of that. But I think 
most uh, most sort of beautifully so in the third film in Genesis, which uh, I'm not spoiling anything for anybody who hasn't heard it, but there's a portion of the film that begins just like the first two do in a sort of video log, except this time it's from a videographer shooting a wedding. So we have the events unfolding for us via the spectator who is shooting a, a, a wedding. And then at one point in the film, when he, I, think, I think it's because he dies, <laughs> that gets... Th that sort of methodology of telling the visual story ends and then a more traditional cutting and shooting begins. And it's, uh, I, who's seen it here among the four of us besides me? Rec I've seen it. Okay. Uh, I, and I agree with you. I think the third, even though it's been sort of reviled by fans, is in some ways the, the most interesting of, of the trilogy. <laughs> the first two struck me as being, um, you know, a kind of clever recycling of of movies, zombie movies that I'd already seen, you know, mm -hmm. Resident Evil and other films uh, of that nature. Um, but the third, the third was interesting. And I, it, since we're on the subject of Spanish cinema, I'll throw another name out there. Uh, you may be familiar with um, Guillaume Morales, who uh, made a film called uh, Julia's Eyes, and yeah, also The Uninvited Guest. Yeah, but I've not uh, seen either of those films. Both of those, I think, are really interesting <laughs> examples, especially The Uninvited Guest, which is uh, his, his earlier film. Um, that, I think, is a movie that really does harken back to uh, some of the performativity that you see in, um, uh, in, in classic Euro horror, uh, although Julia's Eyes uh, has its moments um, as well. Um, in many ways, that's a very performative film that really demands that the viewer step up and and participate in the movie because Fantastic. it's it's about a blind woman who's stalked by uh, an insane killer uh, or a woman who's going blind I should say and oh, and, and much of the movie is um, is shot from her point of view and, and we're forced to share wow. her failing vision uh, as uh, as she tries to um, fight back against uh, uh, against this obsessive stalker, so they're they're both interesting films, and of course the gender dynamics very interesting in that in that movie as well. Um, so yeah, I think there are movies coming out of Spain <laughs> now that, that you know do demonstrate a kinship. Um, it's just that the bulk of them strike me as being uh, closer to to in spirit to American horror than than older European horror films, which I think is a shame. So I see like a mm -hmm. wait, wait until dark with a with a, a strong POV, right, with uh, POV, POV yeah. elements. Yes, <laughs> that yeah. sounds incredible. Um, yeah, and I'll, I definitely want to um, uh, get those titles from you, Ian, um, via email or something. We're through sure. here, and and then you know I think um, what I'd like to do may may I quote directly from your book? Is that okay? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one thing Ian says here towards the end of the book that I'm really enamored with and, and also speaks to a, a show that we did on the, the state of cinema and the, uh, the blockbuster method or approach to making films. Um, this, I'll, just, I'll just go ahead and read. Ian writes, Scanning the bleak landscape of mainstream cinema in the United States in the early 21st century, it is easy to see why Euro horror movies like The House by the Cemetery and Troll 2 currently hold such an allure for American viewers. For all its commitment to epic scale, crowd-pleasing spectacle, contemporary Hollywood cinema simply does not offer audiences the same kind of opportunities for performative spectatorship that these films do. Artistically unadventurous and socially conservative, despite its reputation for little liberal progressivism, it lacks the postmodern textuality that affords Euro-horror viewers the chance to approach film spectatorship as a form of performance in which they are free to adopt multiple viewing positions and experiment 
with a range of different subjectivities generally prescribed by mainstream cinema and the dominant social order. And apart from being, you know, one of the major themes of his of his work, I I think that's that's such a uh, a major contemporaneous issue today uh, that I would strongly encourage all my all our listeners and students and former students that you probably are very sick of of seeing the same old formulaic stuff ram down your throat and if you are looking for something different you are looking for something that's going to excite you and and challenge you and um, bring you into an environment that's at times incredibly chaotic and in, incredibly beautiful uh, born of post-World War II sickness and malaise, Euro horror is where you need to look. <laughs> that's nice. So, and I think, yeah, then that's, and like that. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. That sounds good. It. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's definitely good stuff. Um, I can't believe it's been it's an hour. An hour. Yeah, <laughs> I can't um, believe it's, it's flown that, by. Yeah, that went by really quickly, actually. There is there is one yeah. thing I want to make sure I get on the record here, Eric. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Um, Ian, thank you very much for the shout out and the preface and the acknowledgments. It's 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 the the favor is certainly returned in in my manuscript as well. I, I really really appreciated your friendship and and all your writing over the years. It's my pleasure. You know, as you know, Nick, writing is sometimes a lonely endeavor. And uh, when you have the opportunity to, to, to share what you're working on with somebody else and get, and get uh, feedback, you know, the person is kind enough to offer some feedback, I think that's, that's special and, and should be acknowledged. So it was, uh, it was um, a, a pleasure to have your feedback, and um, it was a pleasure to acknowledge it in the book. It's a very important work. It's, it, your work is very important. It's that simple. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Cut. That's a wrap. Mm-hmm.